Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, the pastoral epistle of Titus. Titus chapter 3, and love is the greatest number 5. Love is the greatest grace. Love is the greatest grace. We would not love at all were it not for the grace of God giving us a new nature and teaching us to love. Love is the greatest grace, number five. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul writing about himself and the other apostles and Titus, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So the apostle describes himself and describes us and describes other ministers as living in malice and envy, which is the opposite of love, and being hateful and hating one another. Now there's a one another that we don't want to practice, but that was on an individual basis hating other people. And so the apostle says that about himself, but notice there is an inspired disjunctive starting the next verse, but... After that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That description in verse 3 was washed away by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and the renewal of that same Holy Ghost so that we think differently and act differently toward others. Love is the greatest grace. By nature, we are the sons and followers of the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. John chapter 8, verse 44. We follow the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, and he's a murderer. He's the one that motivate, motivated Cain and directed Cain to kill Abel. Devils believe and tremble about God and doctrine, but they cannot and do not have any love. A primary device of Satan is to divide and conquer through hate and envy. Bitter envying and strife in the heart is devilish confusion and evil of hell. You're, you're not too far away from James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And let's see that warning there. I've shared with you before the value of this passage to me by a couple of Baptist preachers when I was a teenager and didn't get along with my father the way I should have. James chapter 3 verse 4. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, if you have in your hearts a desire to want to fight, oppose, disagree, and so forth, lie not against the truth, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Remember, I quoted and used James 4.1 earlier today, James 4.1 is right here in context if you take away that chapter break. From whence come wars and fightings among you? They come from our hearts. Back there in verse 14. If ye have bitter, bitterness. Instead of sweetness. Instead of humility. Instead of submission. If you have envying and you have strife. You have conflict. You want to fight. You want to oppose. You want to defend yourself. And those kind of things, that's where war comes from. One nation does something that offends another nation, and they want to go to war over it. And some of the events of World War I and World War II are ridiculously small. 
It was the pride and ambition of nations and rulers that was provoked by some little event that they were looking for and that they used to justify world war. And so the warning here is love is the greatest grace. This is devilish. It's earthly. It's sensual. It, cro- it creates envy and strife and confusion in every evil work. A person that allows any of this doesn't ever amount to anything as a Christian because it is destructive from the inside out, holding and harboring that bitterness, envy, strife, conflict, defensiveness toward others. Instead, we should be selfless, lovers, humble, meek, and like the next two verses describe before the chapter ends. But the wisdom that is from above, instead of devilish wisdom, here's the gracious wisdom that we learn and get in regeneration. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. Pure motives, always pure motives, which is what is in the context earlier, if you go back to, say, verse 8, and run it down through verse 13. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. God loves peacemakers, and those that love, truly love, are peacemakers. And so there's a lot of emphasis on being a peacemaker right here in these two verses. The wisdom that's from above is, is not envy, it's not strife, it's not conflict, it's not defending itself, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's easy to be entreated, it will get things out of the way in order for there to be peace. And that's the person that sows righteousness. The flesh... Our flesh, and we all have it, rebels with such animosity against this grace that it's an obvious true trait of saints because only the truly born again and the truly converted and the truly walking with God and wanting to please Him get along with others. Otherwise, they look for little faults to find because that is what our instinctive nature is, to find faults in others, justify ourselves because we want to justify ourselves as being very righteous, wise, and noble. But we're not those things. We want to find those things in others and lift them up and help them be righteous, wise, and noble if we truly love them because we want to look on every man for his good, his profit, his welfare, his wealth, and to make him better in the sight of the Lord. Saul, Saul of Tarsus, hated Christians exceedingly, he tells us in the Bible. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, loved the same ones dearly. What a change took place in Saul of Tarsus. But first by regeneration, we know that that change takes place. Then by conversion, when he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And the Lord told him what great things he was going to suffer for him because of the great damage he had done the cause of Christ. Faith and knowledge are great, but they require love and can inhibit love. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. We can even learn things from the Bible that can puff us up toward others, but charity edifies. Charity always wants to be building up someone else, not building ourselves up, not defending ourselves, but to build up others. It edifies, and we want that. Number six, love is the greatest evidence. Love is the greatest evidence. The previous one was love is the greatest grace. That was number five. Now number six, love is the greatest evidence. The certain assurance of eternal life to ourselves and to others 
is by our degree of brotherly love. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with the truth. It's not believing the truth. The devils believe the truth. It's not faith. The devils have faith. It's not a profession. There's going to be many that say to him, Lord, Lord, that's not going to cut it because he's going to say, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but they that do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the will of the Father in heaven is to love our brethren and to love our enemies and to love our spouse and to love our children and, and so forth, to love those that the Lord puts in our paths as true neighbors. The certain assurance of eternal life is love. Love is the greatest evidence. Jesus taught his apostles that the mark to identify them as his was brotherly love. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by the love ye have one to another. Individual, one-on-one love is the evidence of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. We as a church have slowly grown in grace, point number five, over the years of our existence to put less stock in our mental acumen, about the doctrines of the Bible and more in the practical actions of our lives, loving the brethren. And that's the difference of the New Testament. And the Lord wants to direct us toward that. And so we want the greatest evidence. The Bible tells us in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead and that faith is not an evidence of eternal life. Can faith save him? Is the rhetorical question asked in James 2. Can faith save him? The answer to that rhetorical question is no. Faith cannot save him. Faith is not sufficient evidence for a man to know he has eternal life. Faith with works is the evidence. And so then the apostle goes on to say, listen, the devils believe and tremble, and that isn't any evidence of their salvation, so you shouldn't put any more stock in it than they do. But we have Rahab and we have Abraham. Rahab was justified by works, and Abraham was justified by works. But... The greatest work of the New Testament, because it's the greatest grace from point five, is love. It's not faith. Faith is the bottom of that eight-step ladder to make your calling and election sure. Faith is the bottom, charity is the top, and the next one from the top is brotherly kindness. I have shared with you already Galatians 5, 6, when we opened this second service, that in Jesus Christ, circumcision doesn't avail anything. Uncircumcision doesn't avail anything. It doesn't matter. But faith, which worketh by love. Now faith that results in action in a changed life of brotherly love, that is an evidence that you're in Christ Jesus. First Peter, first Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter one, verses two through four, knowing brethren beloved, your election of God, your work of faith, your labor of love and your patience of hope. So it's hope that results in patiently or cheerfully enduring negative events. It's love that results in labor, and it's faith that results in works. Now those are the evidences of eternal life. Faith of a changed life, love that labors for other people. Every other one considered, not your friends, not your family, they don't count. They don't count when you stand before the Lord. It's going to be the least of these my brethren you did it to. Or it doesn't count. And so we want to remember that. It's love. Now, where would you go in the Bible if you were looking for the most verses about the assurance of eternal life? Not individual verses, but a section, a passage of Scripture is going to be 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4. And so let's turn there 
briefly and look at some of the verses. They have been preached extensively to you in a series of messages entitled The Assurance of Eternal Life. These verses are weighty and powerful, proving whether we're God's elect and regenerated, have passed from death unto life or not. 1 John 3.10 In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. I don't see faith mentioned there. I see two things that are much larger, much greater. Righteous living, loving the brethren. Verse 11, for this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, a child of the devil, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Hard to believe that a brother would kill a brother, because the brother's works were righteous, so he wanted to kill him for it, and his works were evil. You would think that he would have asked his brother to pray for him and to help him get over his evilness and to be righteous. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. How do we know that we've been born again and we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren? We will lay down our lives for them. We will lay down our stuff for them. We will lay down our time for them. We will lay down our emotion for them. We will give them counsel. We will help them. Otherwise, there isn't evidence that you've passed from death into life. Faith isn't a good enough evidence that you've passed from death into life. The real change is God in us and flowing through us by His Spirit. No man has seen God at any time as I ended the first sermon earlier this morning. But we can see the change in a life by them being selfless rather than being selfish and that's God the Holy Spirit working the fruit of love through a person. Right. Both of these chapters, we could deal with almost every verse in them. Look at verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That doesn't mean we die. We don't cut our throat. We don't jump on a table for a guillotine. It means that we give up our time. We give up our money. We give up our emotion. We give up our our structure, we give up the, the things that we try to control to keep our lives together, we give them up for the benefit of others. It's the word of the Lord. The Lord himself, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven and gave up his life for us. And the Lord's rewarded him with a great life at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 17, Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. See, love is a choice. Bowels are a choice. You don't wait for your stomach to flip over something. You make your stomach flip. You choose to make your stomach flip. Right. People who wait for a feeling of love, they don't have any concept of love. It's a choice. And so this is a choice. You can shut up your bowels of compassion or you can open them up. An enlarged heart is a choice. The medical issue of an enlarged heart is irrelevant. It's rather worthless information. But an enlarged heart in a way that the Bible recognizes and is valuable is a choice. You can choose to have an enlarged heart. The apostle, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, wrote the Corinthian church and said, I have an enlarged heart toward you. Why is your heart straightened? Why don't you have an enlarged heart toward me? Right. 
A straightened heart, that's S-T-R-A-I-T, means like a straight-jacketed heart, is a heart that's been restricted. Like this one right here, shutting up his bowels of compassion. It's a choice, brethren. It's a choice. Don't wait around for it. Don't wait for something to strike you to make it easy to love another. The Lord's already given you the strength and the ability to do it, and he's given you his word telling you to do it. Now make a choice. I am going to be the most loving person in this congregation. And do it. And let your bowels go. Enlarge your heart. I'm going to love the brethren one at a time. Don't just say, I love my church. Those words don't mean anything to God or us. I love my church. What do you love about it? Well, I love its doctrine. I love its worship. We haven't got anywhere. What do you love about our church? A church is a congregation of people. It's a group of lively stones. What do you love about each other, each individual stone that makes up the rest of the congregation? This is the evidence of eternal life. How dwelleth the love of God in him? You want to tell me you love God, but you have a hard time. You stay to yourself. You stay to your spouse. You stay to your family. You stay to your time schedule. You have your little life, which doesn't amount to anything. This is life that amounts to something. It is eternal life. And the way we know we have eternal life is doing this. How dwelleth the love of God in him? It doesn't dwell in him. That is inconsistent to think that we love God and we don't love our brethren. My little children. You think I'm condescending? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Truth is so much more than an intellectual assent to some body of doctrine. Truth is putting into practice the religion of God, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Let us not love in word or deed. Hereby we know that we're of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Do you want your hearts assured before meeting Jesus Christ? He's going to sit as a king of glory on his throne, Matthew 25. All the nations are going to be gathered before him. He is going to divide them, divide the nations and divide the individuals, put sheep at his right hand, goats at his left. The goats go into eternal hellfire. On his right hand, they're welcomed into his kingdom. What is the identifying difference? This group, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they're going to say, when did, when did we neglect you so severely? When you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren. Not to the most loved of these, my brethren. Not to the most popular of these, my brethren. But to the least of these, my brethren. He's going to say it to the wicked and cast them into hell. That's the deciding different difference. It's brotherly love. This is not Jonathan Crosby making a difference in emphasis about the evidence of eternal life. It's the Word of God making it. Because faith is way too easy. That Arminian decision that we sometimes tend to fall back on, even though it's a different set of doctrine, is not good enough. The evidence of eternal life is a changed life, and it's most shown by giving up selfishness to be selfless toward others. That's huge. That shows the grace of God in our lives. And so John works that over in 1 John 3, and he works it over in 1 John 4. And it's hard for me looking at this to figure out which verses I should share with you and not preach verse by verse all the way through both chapters. Verse 8, he that loveth not knoweth not God. What kind of love are we talking about? Love of God? Love of ice cream? 
Love of working? Love of work ethic? What love are we talking about? Loving the brethren. He that loveth not, loveth not God. Knoweth not God. Excuse me, let me read it again. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Verse 12, no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 20, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? You say, I don't hate anybody. It defined hate for you in this verse. Did you see it? Loving not your brother. Yes, you do. If you don't, if you don't actively pursue the well-being of every other church member on an individual basis, you hate your brother. Because it defines hate for us in this passage as not loving that brother. And we've already defined what it means to love a brother. This is the evidence. And so I call it love is the greatest evidence of eternal life. It's so much more than faith. It's so much more than a body of doctrine. It's so much more than baptism. Baptism isn't the evidence of eternal life. What's the evidence of eternal life? Loving the brethren. How do we love the brethren? That, make it, that makes it an evidence. That sacrificial, selfless desire for the welfare and wealth and good and edification of another person of the verses that we went through opening up the first sermons this morning. That's how we define it. Number seven. Love is... I'm not done with number six yet. The emphasis on... The emphasis on practical, personal, intimate matters of hospitality and entertainment is overwhelming in the Bible. It's, it's not overwhelming to me. It's overwhelming in the Bible. I'd rather eat with just my wife. I hate saying that, but I always tell you the truth. I try to always tell you the truth. You know, we're, we're pretty much loners. We like each other's company, and we could be very happy with each other. We, and we try to be. I didn't mean that we're not. It's just that we could be perpetually happy with just ourselves. But Jesus Christ wants something different, and I'll gladly give it to him. I've tried to give it to him, and I'll continue to give it to him until there's nothing left. And he can take my last breath, and it'll be just fine. And I trust the next breath I'll be in heaven with him. And I do care about every single one of you, and I want you to be great in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of all men. I want you to succeed in the job. I want you to succeed in your marriages. I want you to succeed in the sight of God. I want you to succeed at the great day of judgment. I want you to grow and prosper. I, I want your welfare. I want your wealth, the way the Bible defines those terms. Matthew 25. I just went through it. Jesus Christ is going to come and sit as the king of glory on his throne and put the sheep at his right hand, the goats at his left. Just went through it. Long passage, verse 15 verses, 16 verses. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. The whole issue of goats and sheep comes down to not election, not regeneration, not in this context, not more standing before Christ. It comes down to whether you gave somebody a drink. It's whether you gave them some money for clothes. It's whether you visited them when they needed to visit, whether it's the hospital and they're, they're, held, they're laid up in home, they're bedridden, or whatever you fed them when they needed it. That's, that's the issue there. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus will teach that when you give a disciple a cup of cold water in my name, not a cup of cold water through UNICEF, 
not a cup of cold water through United Way. A cup of cold water toward my people, a disciple, you will not, you'll have a disciple's reward. If you give a prophet a reward like that, you'll get a prophet, a, a, a cup of cold water, or you do something for a prophet, you'll get a prophet's reward. Wow. That's easy, guy. That's easy. It's much harder being the prophet. All you've got to do is give him, and I'm not it. You think I'm asking for a cup of cold water? Thank you, Newell. You do it every Sunday. Where is it? Let me, let me have some. Thank you. Every Sunday. That's Matthew 10. It's a cup of, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me that when we stand before God, it's not going to be whether I've been Mother Teresa or not? But all I've done is given a disciple a cup of cold water. That's what it says. Matthew 10, 41 and 42. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world that they be ready to distribute and willing to communicate. Ready to distribute, willing to communicate stuff. That communicate is not communicate by texting or Twitter. That communicating is giving their assets, their income. Ready to distribute, willing to communicate, and lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the, day to, the time to come. They can lay hold of eternal life. These are the words that are used there. They're very hard words to fully appreciate when we've had a background of many decades that salvation is entirely by the finished work of Christ and that we cannot add to it, we cannot buy it by buying Catholic candles or anything like that. And all that is true. Salvation is entirely by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and both of them are according to the electing grace of God. However, how do we have assurance and how do we have evidence? Because point number seven is love is the greatest evidence. Not the condition, not the means, not the instrument of eternal life, but the evidence and assurance of eternal life. What is it? What you do with your money. How you show hospitality and entertainment. It's the Lord's emphasis. And so that's 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. I've quoted it so many times I didn't turn, it to, turn you to it. Ready to distribute, willing to communicate, that they may lay hold of eternal life and lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. I thought there was only one foundation laid that can be laid, and that is Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But this passage tells me there's another foundation, and it's the foundation of evidence that can be laid by hospitality and entertainment and being ready to give it at the moment's notice when it's needed. Isaiah 32 and verse 8 says that a liberal man devises liberal things, and by his liberal things he shall stand. When? Whenever God comes checking on him, he is going to stand and be able to stand in this world or in the next world, the day of judgment. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. He is not unrighteous to forget it, meaning he will remember it, and it's what's going to be shown to our account in the great day of judgment is the evidence of eternal life. Okay, number seven, let me try. Number seven, love is the greatest measure. Number seven is the word measure. Love is the greatest measure. Now we only have nine for next Sunday, which is 
Love is the greatest measure. We approach perfection by God's measurement of us according to our degree of love for others. Love is the greatest measure, the measure of a man, the measure of a woman, the measure of a marriage, the measure of a family, the measure of a church. We approach perfection by God's measurement of us according to our degree of love for others. And based on everything we've learned so far, it makes sense, it's consistent, it's logical, it's scriptural, it's spiritual. No spiritual gift or action, even extreme giving, has any value without brotherly love. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. James, remember what you said to me at break time? Here we go. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the greatest measure of a man, of a woman, of a marriage, of a family. What does the Bible say about the household of Stephanus? Addicted to the service of the saints. Addicted to it. Noted in the word of God, and that family's been read about for 2,000 years. Even while they were alive, they were read about. Love is the greatest measure. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. You know the verses well. You've heard them so many times. This is the measure of a man. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, is that the measure of a man? And have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. No, the measure of a man, according to verse 1, is not speaking in tongues, even if those tongues and languages were the languages of angels. It's charity. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. What's the measure of a man? His intellectual knowledge of the truth of God? His, his knowledge of Bible prophecy and future things? Is it prophecy? Is it mysteries? Is it knowledge? Is it faith? No, 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 no. What is it? Charity again. The measure of man is charity. It's not any intellectual or doctrinal understanding of the Word of God, nor the ability to be able to plumb the depths of the mysteries of God. And there are many mysteries in the Bible. And we're told that we have mysteries that have been revealed, but only the studious ever learned them. But that's not the measure of a man. The measure of man is charity. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, this is a deep comparison, but it's very simple. Goats on, my left, goats on the Lord's left hand. Sheep on the Lord's right hand. What is the deciding difference? Giving to the poor. Giving to the least of these my brethren. Now, what if someone comes along and gives all of his goods to feed the poor? Jesus said, you're going to hell because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. Jesus is going to say, you're going to heaven because when I was hungry, you did feed me. But what if a person sold everything they had and gave everything to feed the poor? Is it the measure of a man? Now, I just said it was the measure of a man, but now I'm going to say it's not the measure of a man. Because it's not the measure of a man. What is the measure of a man? Charity. What charity? Giving all my goods to feed the poor? No. Getting along with each other, which is a whole lot harder than taking someone to eat. Are you bad? Can I, can I create the full circle here for you to follow the logical train all the way around and understand it? So when we stand before Jesus Christ and he identifies us as having taken care, not, not on this side, this side, the sheep, 
taken care of the least of his brethren, it's also because we kept what's in verses 4 through 7. Because if you don't do what's in verses 4 through 7, which is real charity, overlooking their offenses against you, and we're all going to offend each other all the time. Which means you always have an opportunity to practice true Bible charity. But if we don't do that, it wouldn't matter if we fed the poor with all of our goods. Nor would it matter if we were a martyr for the cause of Christ. It will not stand in heaven as great evidence of eternal life. What will stand? If we practice verses 4 through 7. Are you able to see that connection? Because on one hand, Matthew 25 says, giving to the poor. On the other hand, Paul says right here, that though I would give everything to feed the poor, it doesn't matter. It profits me nothing. So what's the measure of a man, of a marriage, of a family, and of a church? The charity of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And that 4 through 7 then results in taking care of the least of these my brethren, but with the proper priority. We overlook and forgive them and forbear with them, which is the harder thing to do. And once in a while, we drop them some bucks that they may need to take care of some needs in their life or to put a smile on their face. And like the the book of Job says about Job, Job caused the widow's heart to sing. It didn't say Job kept her from starvation. Job kept her from hypothermia. It said Job caused the widow's heart to sing. All other measures of a church must be lower than what I just gave you. Doctrine is lower. Prayer is lower. Giving is lower. Evangelizing is lower. Building is lower. Everything is lower because of what we're shown right here and in other passages. Love is the real measure. How do we measure up with Christ? First love. What if it's less than first love? Do we measure up? No. He says, repent or I'll come quickly and take away your candlestick. I will rip the Holy Spirit out of your church if you do not repent and give me first love again. Love's the measure. That's love toward Christ in that particular case. God's perfect children love their enemies, Matthew chapter 5. That makes us like God our Father because he loves his enemies in that way of practical benevolence in life by sunshine and rain. Paul described love as the bond of perfection and growth for churches in places that I've already shared with you. Ministers that are provided an example for the believers by loving good men. What's one of the measures of a minister? He loves good men. And he puts his time there. His time isn't on the golf course. His time isn't with lifting buddies. His time is with those that love the Lord. And his, and his love and affection is for them. Paul prayed for love to increase, for it to abound, and for it to continue, because it's the great measure of churches. He desired and commended its increase, where there was an increase. Many men were measured heroes by their faith and hope in Hebrews chapter 11, but love is much greater. Coveting the best spiritual gifts is desirable, but practicing charity is superior. In 1 Corinthians 12, the last verse, verse 31, taught us that. Without charity, the best use of the best spiritual gifts imaginable is utterly and totally worthless. Profits me nothing. I am nothing. 
without charity and love toward the brethren. True love must be unfeigned and without dissimulation. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who love and serve others. When Jesus sensed and knew that his apostles were arguing that once he left, who would be in charge? He said, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And we're supposed to copy that in the way that we love the brethren. We give our lives for them. It's the greatest measure of a man. Let me say it for about the, let's go ahead and say fifth time. It's the greatest measure of a man, a marriage, a family, and a church. How much does your family serve others? All your children, right down to the young ones. What do they do when they come here? Hang around with their siblings? Why? Because they don't know how to function? They don't know how to love? They haven't been taught to serve? You didn't give them any assignments before you came to church in the morning? Of people they ought to look out and say something to? It's the greatest measure of an individual, man or woman, marriage, family, church. Let it always be true of our church that we have the greatest measure in place, and that's love of the brethren. It's not love of visitors. It's love of the brethren. I've said this before, but it's easy for us to love visitors or strangers. You know, to have that letter from the wells, does that make you feel comfortable that you're full of brotherly love? It was easy to have the wells here. Many of you took them for two or three hours for a meal in your home, and then you got to say bye-bye to the family of five, six. Yes, there was six. As they left. But John 13 doesn't say, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by the love ye have to strangers, by the love ye have to visitors, by the love ye have to website contacts, Oh, is that easy. Do you know how fast I can do it through Western Union when they draft my bank account? Is that the measure of me being a disciple of Jesus Christ or you being one with me? No, it's by the love you have one to another. One-on-one, right. -on -one, the individual relationships that we have, that's the measure. True love is very visible. This is the painful part of this point. It's the last point, and with this I close. True love is very visible for measurement by others. It's very easy to rank this church from the most loving to the least loving because you can't do it at home by yourself. You can't do it in your prayer closet. You can't do it in your thoughts. You can't do it in your deed, your words. It's done in deed and in truth and it costs and the cost becomes evident publicly by what you do for other people. So that Paul could write Philemon and say the whole church knows of your charity. Paul could write in Ephesians and say that the love of the Ephesian church was known. Paul could write in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and tell the Corinthian church, you know, the church at Philippi has the reputation already. If you'll give like they give, you can have the reputation for the church of Corinth because it's, it's visible. See, faith, we can just sit there and sing, Faith of our fathers, living still, in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. But when it comes to brotherly love, it means you're going to get out of your comfort zone. You're going to do something 
People are going to talk about it. It's going to be seen. It's going to be heard. It's going to be known. Can't hide it. It's not like other things that are intellectual or just professed or just a thought like faith, I believe. It's doing something. So it's the greatest measure. Love is the greatest measure. That's number seven. May the Lord bless our church, our families, our marriages, us individually to be more like God our Father and more like our Savior Jesus Christ in loving others and wanting to serve others and laying down our lives for them. If you lay down your life for the brethren, will you lose your life? What is, you'll find it. Jesus said that. Paul taught it. Jesus said it and Paul quoted it. Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive. If a man tries to save his life, he'll lose it. If a man will lose his life for my sake and the, and the least of my brethren, he'll find it. It's real life. It's real living. It's real pleasure. Does it get tiring sometimes? Yes. Does it sometimes suck the life out of our souls? You want to hear my terminology? Let me give you Paul's instead. I will very gladly spend and be spent, though the more I love you, the less I be loved. Was Paul pretty happy? Did Paul know that when he died there was a crown of righteousness and a crown of life waiting for him? Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. And um, it's the best way to live. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Please stand with me.